For those of you for whom this is the first retreat, I'd like to offer my joy with you that you have made it through a whole day of <laughs> your first retreat. It's an accomplishment. And tonight I'd like to talk about uh, one of the things Pat talked about this morning was how our practice is kind of like an art. He talked about how we create our own canvas of our practice. And all minds are different in so many different ways, and certain practices work for some of us, and uh, other practices are more helpful for others of us. And in my own uh, exploration of this art of meditation, there's one aspect of the practice that I feel is really uh, helpful to highlight And that is how we use our effort. And so the exploration tonight will be about um, wisdom and effort. The usual way that we approach making effort for whatever we want to do in our lives may not actually be the best approach for our meditation practice. We often have a kind of a go out and get it, I'm going to do it, um, bring a lot of energy to what we're trying to accomplish, a lot of focus and drive to what we're doing. And um, that approach may not actually be the best way to go about our exploration of our minds. In a way, our minds are kind of a delicate uh, a delicate creature. And uh, it takes very delicate kind of investigation to really begin to see into how our minds work. And the sledgehammer approach kind of doesn't get to the subtlety of what's going on. So the Buddha encouraged us to apply ourselves with wisdom and with balance. And the wisdom that he suggested, I'd like to actually start by talking a little bit about the wisdom that he suggested we bring, because the wisdom frames the entire approach to our practice, the wisdom that the Buddha offered. So he actually offered a kind of a worldview, a way of approaching our experience, our lives, that shifts our perspective, reorients us in terms of how we live in the world. Our usual worldview um, is given to us by our families, our parents, culture, the television programs we watch, the radio we listen to. All of that kind of influences how we see our world. And from that perspective, we orient our activities in a certain way. 
in particular around what we think it takes to be happy. You know, our, our approach to um, being happy is basically one of acquiring material things or um, good opinions of people. And we think that happiness will come from that acquisition. One of the teachings of the Buddha is that there are these eight worldly winds that blow through our lives. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. And the Buddhist perspective on this is that these are just like winds blowing through the sky. There's going to be winds coming from the north or the south or some days from the east or the west, and and that's just what's happening. But the way we normally approach our lives and happiness is to, to believe that it's possible to only have pleasure, praise, gain, and fame. You know, that, that, that that is what happiness would be, to have that in our lives, to have only that in our lives. And we somehow get the idea that it's possible and that if it's not happening for us, we're the problem. That's what we think, that if we are in a situation where somehow we haven't managed to construct our lives to be nothing but pleasure, fame, praise, and gain, that something is wrong with us. And the Buddha's approach is, if that's where you're you're looking for happiness, you are destined to be unhappy because it's not possible to control those worldly winds. That we don't have that kind of control. So the wisdom that the Buddha offered, that he framed, largely has to do with this topic or this concept of dukkha, often translated as suffering. I like leaving it untranslated because the term dukkha itself is a much broader term. It means everything from really catastrophic suffering down to the subtlest unease um, that comes with just being alive. So the Buddha, in his own journey, he went out there in his own exploration to see what is it that makes us What is this dukkha about? And is it possible to be free of this dukkha? And in his own exploration of his own mind, what he discovered is essentially that that dukkha, that our struggle with the world, is not caused by those eight worldly winds, but caused essentially by our relationship to them. That essentially we struggle because we are pinning our happiness on things that are impermanent and unreliable. That's what we're doing. We're going around our... It's, it's the poignancy of being human. And actually, uh, one of the stories that's told about the Buddha, the Buddha's awakening, is that 
after he awakened, he looked around at how people were engaged in the world and he saw them trying to be happy, looking for ways to find happiness, doing the best that they could to be happy and doing exactly those things would, that would ultimately lead to their unhappiness trying to hold on to things that are impermanent and unreliable. Living in a delusion that that it's possible to control these worldly winds. And feeling like it's a problem when we don't have that control. So this is one of the uh, offerings of wisdom that the Buddha has for us. That it is this holding to impermanent, unreliable experience that is right at the core of our struggle. And in that, um, he also saw that there's some key things that happen in our minds that keep us tied up with this, we could call it a program. You know, we... uh, we're born with this notion in a way. It's, it seems to be very deeply ingrained in us. It's not necessarily just given by culture. I mean, the Buddha described this program of how we try to find happiness by controlling the world, by holding on to things that are impermanent and unreliable. He described this 2,600 years ago. You know, this is, this is not a new program that's running in our minds. It's a, it's a very deeply embedded program. But fortunately, it's not hardwired This is one of the things that he discovered. It's possible actually to shift how our minds work. And one of the key things he suggested we do is to look at some states of mind. He said that there's certain things, certain actions, if we take actions out of certain states of mind, we will tend to wind ourselves into the patterns and habits of suffering over and over again. And he identified those... uh, as states that were based or rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. Greed, wanting to hold on to things. Aversion, wanting to get rid of things. And delusion, confusion. And misperception around our experience. So this is another key piece of wisdom that the Buddha offers us, that if we act, if we take action out of states of mind that are based in greed, aversion, or delusion, we will tend to perpetuate our struggles. So these states based in greed, aversion, and delusion Uh, The Buddha calls those unskillful states, unwholesome states of mind. And I like the word unskillful because it points to um, a kind of a more practical ethics in in what the Buddha was talking about. You know, he really... um, he, He really wasn't that judgmental about these states of mind. He just simply said, if you want to be happy... These states are not going to lead to your well-being and your happiness. So it's helpful to find ways to let go of those states. Find ways to cultivate states that are based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. 
So these unskillful, unwholesome states based in greed, aversion, delusion. Now these are the whole host of afflictive emotions and then some that we may not necessarily think of as afflictive, but when we actually begin to look at, we see the agitating nature of them. So states like anger, hatred, irritation, frustration, confusion, excitement, pride, lust, lust for power, lust for, for money, for fame, despair. All of these states are rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. Skillful states of mind, wholesome states of mind, those that tend to, when we act out of these states of mind, lead us more towards happiness. These are states like joy, happiness, tranquility, peace, equanimity, mindfulness, generosity, love, compassion. When we act out of states like that, when those are in in our hearts as we act, our actions tend to lead us more towards happiness. So this is the wisdom that the Buddha offers us. If we want to free ourselves from the way we get caught, the way we struggle in our lives, and this is the range of struggle. This is everything from the despair we feel when we uh, lose a partner to the irritation we have at a coworker when they didn't finish their job. I just want to say, because sometimes saying something like that, you know, saying that the despair we feel at the loss of a partner is dukkha. And it is dukkha. It is... We feel it as dukkha, we feel it as suffering. And yet sometimes we feel in a way, well, if I didn't feel that despair, I wouldn't be human. And so we may resist looking at what we're holding on to there. We may resist seeing what our participation in that despair is. And there's a way... You know, I think in my own experience and exploration of this kind of thing is that, you know, loss, for instance, the the experience of loss will produce a state of a form of sadness, a form of uh, acknowledgement of that loss that is not, it's not, it's not flat. It's not like nothing. It's not like you're this robot, you know, this automaton that's just like, oh, loss and no reaction to it. There is a response in the heart and mind, but the heart doesn't contract around it. It's as if the heart, it is, it's like the heart acknowledging that this is the way it is 
without resistance. Feeling the loss fully, but without clamping down around it, without getting stuck around it. In a way, when I've experienced this kind of sadness, it feels very pure. You know, that it, it doesn't have, it's, it's like it's just washing through. It doesn't stick anywhere. It doesn't have any kind of stickiness to it. So this perspective of wisdom, that it's possible to begin to look into our minds and see how is our mind participating? Are, uh, are there these states, these unwholesome states acting in our minds? This is uh, the way the Buddha suggests we apply our energy and make effort in our practice. So energy, energy itself is, um, you know, it's a kind of a neutral quality of mind. I mean, the same energy itself could be connected with um, our actions that are connected with hatred and despair. There's, there's energy in the mind and body tied up with those kinds of states of mind. And it can be energy that's directed towards uh, freeing ourselves from the ways that we get stuck. So energy itself is kind of neutral and it's the, the art and the skill of our meditation practice is to orient that energy towards the wisdom that the Buddha offers us. Cultivating skillful qualities, letting go of unskillful qualities. This is essentially the Buddha's definition of what making skillful effort is. I'm going to take a a little while, a few minutes, to talk about this uh, teaching on wise effort. The Buddha said, you know, there's four, four ways of making skillful effort in this practice. And no big surprise, it's oriented around these qualities, whether we have skillful qualities or unskillful qualities in our mind. He said that we should work towards avoiding and letting go of these unskillful states. And we should work towards cultivating and maintaining the skillful states. So the first one, the framing of it, the actual wording of it, I'll read it to you, um, is the effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. That's the way it's framed in the texts the effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Three negatives in that sentence. That that one I had to think about when I first started reading this. Essentially, this is, to, to change the wording a little bit, it's the effort to avoid those states that lead us to suffering. So, Exploring in our mind, part of how this works is that we explore in our minds when we do find ourselves in states of suffering, what is it that's getting us there? You know, we, we explore, we um, notice what goes on in our minds and begin to recognize, you know, these are the conditions that lead to this. 
And the avoiding is to, in seeing those conditions, to begin to not engage with those conditions. So just a simple example. I mean, um, what you might think of this teaching about avoiding unskillful states as, as meaning is, for instance, you might notice that every time you see a particular person, that your mind gets really agitated. And so, you know, you begin to notice the connection. And it may, this may be pretty obvious to you. You know, you notice the connection between being in the same room as this person and the agitation. And so, you know, one way to explore this teaching would be to say, okay, well, that person is the cause of the agitation, so I should avoid being in their presence. And that would certainly help that situation. Um, And yet the avoidance that the Buddha is suggesting we look at has a subtler exploration than that. There's a a subtler way to explore it. Because again, remember that the Buddha (laughs) said that what's going on is that there's something in our own minds. You know, there's stuff happening in the world, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, and it's not that stuff that's the problem. It's our relationship to it. And so in this situation of having agitation arise whenever this person is in the room with you, the encouragement might be to look a little more closely because that person doesn't have the power to agitate your mind. And that's actually really good news. That person does not have the power to agitate your mind. The worldly winds do not have the power to cause, you, cause suffering. Your own mind is what has that power. And so a deeper exploration might be to recognize that when that person is in the room with you, that fear arises or confusion arises. And maybe that uh, fear or confusion um, is because the person has a kind of a, a body shape that looks like somebody who was um, very unkind to you when you were younger. You might begin to see those connections in the exploration of this. And so this deeper exploration of looking at the causes of agitation, the associations in the mind, how it's how the, the actual agitation is constructed in that situation, as we meet those more direct internal causes, our mind begins to, uh, through wisdom, through seeing how that suffering is put together, it begins to understand how to let go of it. It's actually... You know, not necessarily something that we can figure out how to do, how to let go of that suffering. But the mind, as it sees the workings of that suffering, begins to understand how to release and let it go. And so this would be a different way of avoiding that unwholesome state. We, we um, see into the deeper causes of that agitation. And this is more of what we explore in our meditation practice. 
as things arise, we turn towards them. And this is pointing to the second wise effort, the effort to let go of unwholesome states that have arisen. So we um, avoid and let go of unwholesome states. So the uh, letting go of unwholesome states that have arisen. Now this again has some subtlety to it. You know, we we can at times in seeing difficult states of mind, and, and actually Wes is going to talk quite a bit about working with challenging states of mind tomorrow. So this is just a preview. Um, when we um, see that we're caught in some kind of an unwholesome state or difficult state of mind, such as anger, uh, frustration, irritation, um, wanting, when we see that we're caught by it, we may be able to actively let it go. And that's what it sounds like this, um, this exploration of wise effort is saying. We let go of unwholesome states that have arisen. So it sounds like I should be able to simply say, oh, there's anger, I'll let that go. How many of you have been able to do that? You know, our minds are just not that, you know, generally not that uh, trainable immediately. So sometimes we can. Sometimes we can, you know, notice it, bring some reflection in, recognize, you know, I know this isn't helping you know, we can see the drawbacks of the state or, you know, we can, we can do something. We can actively bring in some reflections that help us to let it go. Or we may be able to see or actively, like, redirect our attention. There was one period of time in um, the, the first few years of my practice where anger was very strong. Anger at a particular person. There was a, a very strong pattern. Whenever this person, thought of this person came up in my mind, anger would flare up. And the causes and conditions there were pretty clear to see. But I also saw that as I tried to, okay, just allow the anger, be with the anger, you know, trying to do that practice, what I saw was that that anger had way more momentum than the mindfulness did. And I would just get sucked into the anger. So I began um, doing kind of a setting aside. It's like, oh, I see you. You know, the anger arises. And it's like, I just like bowed to it. I said, you know, I see you, but, you know, I can't be mindful of you right now. I'll be mindful of you when my mindfulness gets stronger. But right now, you know, I'm going to pay attention to my feet. So it's just like redirecting the attention. Not with an aversive pushing away, but just saying, yep, I see you, I'm going to put my attention over here. This is one way of letting go of an unwholesome state. And what I saw happened as I did that is kind of like, um, you know, I just turned my attention elsewhere and it's kind of like it was taking the gears out of the of the anger and it kind of just wound its way down and you know i went on with my with my day so this is another way for um that abandoning unwholesome states i think the one of the the main ways that we work with this abandoning of difficult states when they arise is simply the mindfulness of them when we when we can be mindful of them when our mindfulness does have the ability to meet them without getting sucked into them we just 
turn towards them, allow them, open to them. And this too is like taking the gears out of the, uh, the pattern. You know, if instead of being engaged in the pattern, in this case of anger, if instead of being engaged in that pattern, that program, which when we are in that pattern without clear awareness and clear mindfulness, we tend to be thinking thoughts about it, right? We tend to be thinking, well, that person shouldn't have done that, and I've got to figure out this, and, and I'm going to make sure this happens and that happens so that I get to make sure they're just as miserable as I am right now. And our minds just spin, and it makes the... Um, it basically perpetuates the anger. And when we, instead of allowing that pattern to run, we turn towards the anger feel into being with it or any of these difficult states, you know, just turning towards them. It also is like taking the gears, you know, kind of like putting the mind into neutral. You know, if a car is going 100 miles an hour down a road and you put the car into neutral, the car doesn't stop immediately, but it will stop because you're no longer giving it the fuel. And very similarly in the mind, when you allow open to these states of mind without any longer feeding them or fueling them, those patterns may continue for a while. You may have to hang out in the space of feeling what it's like to be a human being that feels that difficult emotion. This is what it's like to be a human being that's angry. You may have to hang out in that space for a while, but if you can allow it as opposed to uh, engage with it, it will wind out. This is a huge part of our practice. This is a lot of how this um, abandoning unwholesome states works. Then there's the effort to... um, arouse wholesome states. Wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. There's two basic ways to do this. And um, you know, Pat t- touched on these yesterday when he talked about, or he touched on at least one of them yesterday when he talked about the precepts. One of the ways to encourage wholesome states is essentially to refrain from acting unwholesomely. So this is part of the benefit of our engagement with the precepts. As we engage in refraining from false speech, we are simultaneously, whether or not it's obvious or not, cultivating the wholesome quality of truthfulness. When we refrain from causing harm to living beings, whether or not we're consciously aware of it, we are cultivating compassion. And so this is one way to work with the cultivation of wholesome states, to engage with the precepts, to engage with refraining from harming. And again, as Pat said last night, you know, it, it's got this beautiful side to it. You know, it's not just about um, thou shalt not. 
It's really about cultivating some of these beautiful states of mind. We cultivate compassion through refraining from harming. We cultivate contentment through refraining from stealing. We cultivate truthfulness through refraining from lying. We can also cultivate positive qualities through positive action. The one that we will be primarily exploring in this retreat will be, or one of the ones we'll be exploring in this retreat will be the practice of metta, which is cultivating, actively cultivating the open heart, this feeling of a connected, relational, uh, non-sticky relationship, a kind of an unconditional well-wishing, very beautiful state of mind that we'll be actively cultivating by inclining our minds in that direction. So this is another way to work with this kind of effort. Another key way to work with this effort is to cultivate mindfulness. Mindfulness with this perspective of wise effort. The mindfulness that results as we apply wise effort One of my teachers, my teacher, Saida Upandita in Burma, said, this kind of mindfulness, this is the most wholesome mind state. And so actively cultivating mindfulness is cultivating a mind state that will serve you in your movement towards happiness. And again, this is one of those that's kind of, it's kind of hidden from us. You know, we, we don't, we don't necessarily recognize or, or, or realize that as we're turning to pay attention to whatever difficulty we're paying attention to, you know, we tend to be oriented to the suffering, right? You know, it's like, oh, there's, there's, you know, depression happening and, oh, okay, depression. This is what, this is what it feels like to be depressed. Okay. Unpleasant experience and the heaviness. Yep. Okay. Tightness. And we're, 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 we're working with the being with it. And yet we're not noticing that we're, as that's happening, we're cultivating wise mindfulness, wise effort, and wise concentration. They're kind of coming along for the ride, these beautiful states of mind, as we engage in our mindfulness practice, whatever we're looking at, whatever we are with. So this is, this is a, another part of the big way we work with this aspect of wise effort, arousing wholesome mind states. The moment that mindfulness re-arises, that moment Pat was talking about this morning, when mindfulness re-arises, the spontaneous re-arising of mindfulness, that moment, that's the opportunity to reconnect with that wholesome quality right there. And then the fourth, the effort to sustain wholesome states that have arisen. When I first heard this one, it's kind of like, well, why would we have to make effort to sustain these, you know, beautiful states of mind? And then I began looking at my own mind and saw a couple things, you know. I saw that my own mind actually felt really uncomfortable with joy and happiness. I was way more comfortable with aversion. And so 
when joy arose, there was kind of like a, well, there, one, of the, one of the patterns that happened is when joy arose, I kind of talked myself out of it by like spinning myself into the future, thinking about, well, how is this going to keep going? And what am I going to do to make sure this, and how do, what does this person have to know? And what does that person, and, and I, there would be times actually that I would wake up into this state of agitation. I remember one time in particular, I woke up into this state of agitation while I was driving my car. And uh, it's like, okay, come back, steering wheel, hands on, be present, come back. And then the mind would spin right out again. And uh, it, it happened several times and I'd just come back to my hands on the steering wheel and it happened enough that it's like, well, what else is going on here? What else is going on here? And what I came to actually when it's like I opened, it, opened up my attention, What's, what else is going on here? I was really happy. I had completely missed it because the mind had picked up on how do I like, keep going with this? So actually noticing, recognizing when happiness arises, when calm arises, when joy arises, when generosity arises. Mindfulness of these states is really one of the biggest ways to cultivate them. So I was just pointing to this, you know, in our practice, many beautiful qualities begin to come along. You know, we, we cultivate attention to the breath and calm begins to settle. Rather than having a sense of indulgence in that, clear knowing, yep, calm. There's calm and the breath. There's spaciousness and the breath. There's joy and the breath. Clearly recognizing these states rather than kind of uh, either missing them entirely, which was my pattern, or kind of reveling in them. So sometimes in exploring this teaching of right effort, um, you know, it sounds like we talk in being mindful about opening to what's happening, meeting our experience, not trying to change it. And people say, well, how does that fit with wise effort? You know, in wise effort, we're trying to cultivate the wholesome. We're trying to let go of the unwholesome. And what I'd like to to explore with you, say, you know, um, just a point out here is that when we practice mindfulness in this way of opening to, allowing, it already contains the four right efforts. So for example, if we are cultivating mindfulness of frustration, you know, we're turning towards it, we're opening to it, we're allowing it. We are no longer feeding the anger. Or the, the frustration. We're no longer thinking it with our thoughts. We're no longer fueling that frustration with our thoughts. And so we are essentially in that activity of bringing the mindfulness to our frustration, avoiding 
the arising of more frustration. There may be some frustration arising now, but it is not getting worse. It's not perpetuating. So we are, we are avoiding the arising of future frustration, which is the first kind of wise effort. We are um, working with that abandoning of the frustration that has arisen, the difficult the state that has arisen, by the very mindfulness of it, that disengagement of the gears, that will eventually wind out like the car coming to a stop as we put the car into neutral. And we are simultaneously cultivating mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, compassion. One of the great things that develops as we watch our own minds is a kind of a a recognition in seeing what our minds do we clearly see that it's not just our own minds. You know, this is, this is the mind multiplied by, what is it now? Seven, seven billion, seven billion people in the world. <laughs> you know, that it is, it's just amazing. And we see very clearly that it's not just our own mind. And with that, compassion is born. The poignancy of seven billion minds doing the same thing. And so right effort in our mindfulness practice, right effort is essentially, you know, four sides of a single process. These four ways of being with experience. The other aspect or avenue to reflect on effort and energy is in how we bring our effort to our practice. I'm going to talk about, you know, two basic things. One is that if we have a kind of a a curiosity or an interest in our experience, if we bring to our experience an attitude of interest, of curiosity, of exploration, instead of, you know, oh, frustration's arising, it's like, okay, frustration. You know, actually it doesn't matter what's arising in our minds. It really doesn't matter. We can cultivate these qualities of mindfulness, of equanimity, of compassion, of metta, with whatever is happening. So it doesn't really matter what's happening. What matters is how we are with it. What's our relationship to that? And if we can have this relationship of curiosity, oh, frustration, what's it like to be a human being that's frustrated? If we can have that approach a very natural kind of energy follows. And it doesn't feel like we have to like drag up the reserves of energy and go, okay, let's turn it up. Let's bring that mindfulness to that frustration. Okay. That, that um, interest, that curiosity in investigation naturally brings a kind of a very skillful 
kind of effort and energy to our minds. And so you may be able to reframe or, you know, just drop in the attitude of curiosity into your experience. It's like you're all out there running your own science lab on your own minds. And what does this experiment do? How does, oh, here's the experiment of depression. Let's see what that's, what that's producing. Here's the experiment of anger. Well, let's see what that's producing. Not taking it personally. Again, recognizing these patterns are kind of, they're human patterns. So, curiosity, interest, investigation. The other piece is that sometimes we do need to kind of, you know, bring in that active approach of, yep, need to actually direct the attention, make some effort to connect. This is really where the art of effort comes in. The Buddha actually used an an analogy of uh, art, of music, essentially, in exploring this tuning of our effort. He said to one uh, person who had been... uh, The story goes that this person was... um, he, was, he had enlightenment or bust on his forehead. You know, he was going for it. And he was doing walking meditation all night long until his feet bled. And the Buddha said, you know, when you were a lay person, did you play a musical instrument? Did you play the lute? And he said, yes, I did. And the Buddha said, well, when the string was too tight, did the lute make, be- make beautiful music? And he said, no. And he said, when the string was too loose, did it make beautiful music? And he said, no. He said, likewise, in our practice, the amount of effort has to be tuned like that, neither too tight nor too loose. The implication here was that Sona, the name of this monk, had had his string tuned so tight that it had completely snapped. So he was way overdoing it. So it's helpful to to recognize essentially some of the symptoms of overdoing it or underdoing it. Overdoing it, too much effort, often will manifest as a restless energy in the mind. Underdoing it will often manifest as a kind of a dullness or a, a sleepiness in the mind. So we can balance the energy this, you know, this tuning, we can balance the energy by the way we make our effort. Sometimes our effort is too intense. This, like when Sona was doing the walking meditation until his feet bled. When our effort is too intense, we get exhausted. We get burned out on the practice, and it feels burdensome. 
So those are also some uh, possible signs to, to notice, that if, if it feels like it feels burdensome to be practicing, you know, sometimes what our in- inclination is there, you know, it's like we, we think, oh, the practice feels burdensome. Oh, but I need to practice. And we double down. And what actually may be called for th- there is to back off. If it feels burdensome, see what happens if you back off. Sometimes what I explore when it's like I'm feeling like there's that kind of charge energy, I ask myself, how little effort do I need to make to be mindful? Just check out. Maybe I don't have to make this much effort. Well, let me just sit back and see. Oh, yeah, wow. Nope, don't have to make that much effort. Okay. And it's kind of like dialing back the level of effort. And at some point, it's a little too dialed back. And the mind goes off. Okay, well, then maybe that's too far. Let's add a little bit more intentionality. When the effort is too lax, our mind won't stay present. The mind won't be connected to experience. There may be a sense of laziness or dullness in the mind. That may be when we need to add a little bit of connect, meet, sustain the uh, attention on experience. And yet, that way of connecting, sustaining, meeting experience, it's not like picking up something heavy. It's more like picking up something light and then doing it again and doing it again. In a moment, it actually doesn't take very much effort to be mindful. Right now, how much effort does it take to notice the sensations of your hands? How much effort does it take to notice the contact of your hips or buttocks on the chair or cushion or bench? How much effort does it take to notice the contact of your lips touching each other? It doesn't take much in a moment to be mindful. What's hard for us is to sustain that. And typically what we think we need to do is to like bear down and hold the attention there. It's like, okay, attention to breath, mm, I'm going to bear down on it. The approach that's more helpful to us is rather than bearing down in that way, trying to like hold on, is to be with the breath for a second. You know, half a breath. Joseph, sometimes Joseph Goldstein, calls this the secret teaching of our breath practice. All the effort you need to make is to be present for half a breath. That's it. Half a breath. And then do it again. And then do it again. And then do it again. And again. (laughs) It doesn't take a lot of effort in a moment. It takes the light touch moment after moment after moment. And so exploring that light touch of effort and connecting 
moment after moment. Effort in this practice is about kind of the frequency of that connection. Every half breath, for example. Every one to two steps in the walking. Just reminding yourself, you know, I would do this in the walking if I found my mind really wandering around. I would, I would say, okay, I see a little spot on the carpet there. Let's see if I can make it to that. And it was like, you know, a step and a half, right? It's like, okay, I could make it that far and be mindful. And then I'd pick another spot. And well, I can make it that far. And in this way, just that light amount of effort, just like, like hand over hand, just a little bit of effort, moment after moment. So the effort that we make is a light touch many times. And then what begins to happen is that effort gains a momentum. It's like um, being on a scooter. Initially, if you're on a scooter, you have to, you know, tap the ground a lot to get it going. But once the momentum builds, you don't have to keep tapping it as much. You get familiar with the feeling of the momentum of that scooter going forward. And you learn, like, when you need to put your foot down again. You know, so it's, it's kind of similar with our meditation, that we have to start by making that light touch, like every half breath, every half breath, every half breath. And then we begin to see that there's more of a momentum. And maybe it's like we, we see, wow, you know, we can hang out for three or four breaths and we don't actually have to do much. But if we don't make that connection, you know, that conscious connection every three or four breaths, we may find our mind wandering off. And so this is really the art of meditation. Knowing, getting familiar with essentially our mindfulness and energy getting wobbly, like the scooter gets wobbly. Get familiar with that state of being present and we begin, to, un- we begin to, to recognize how much do I actually need to make that light touch of effort? How much do I need to tap? How much do I need to connect? Connect and sustain, connect and sustain. The sustaining is kind of like riding, riding that scooter. We get familiar with like, how far, how, 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 how long can I ride this wave of awareness? We get familiar with that feeling of awareness and learn to tune our effort to how that awareness is. If that awareness is actually naturally sustained, and we're like every half breath, noticing every half breath, every half breath, we're actually getting in the way of our mind's ability to to get into that subtlety that I was talking about. You know that uh, the the less active effort we employ, the more fine our understanding of our minds can be. And so this skillful effort produces a, a skillful energy and it begins to feel effortless. 
over time. You may, you may run into this like in little bits. And it's not, it's not like, you know, you hit the effortless part of the retreat and it's like that for the rest of the retreat. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. <laughs> you may find that, you know, during one sitting, you find, wow, you know, I can be with 15 breaths without hardly doing anything at all. And that, um, that's a kind of a, a taste of that less effortful practice. And then something will happen. You know, a neighbor sneezes and the mind goes reactive over that. And then, oh, okay, every half breath now. Let me notice the agitation of how I was with that sneeze. And, okay, that agitation's and back to half a breath, half a breath, half a breath. And then, oh, every three or four breaths is enough now. So it's really tuning our level of effort to how the mind is in this moment. So we make the effort we turn our attention towards our experience and then we let go our other habitual way of being in the world is to make effort to get something to get a particular result On our schedule, usually, we want a particular result. And in this practice, we really have to let go of that. Our exploration is cultivating the mindfulness and the wise effort. We cultivate those turning towards our minds, our hearts, meeting whatever's arising there. The wisdom, the insight, the freedom, the release, that happens on its own time. We can't make it happen. And so we make the effort and then we let go. We're not in control of the time frame of our practice. Kamala Masters, one of my um, colleagues, and I was in a retreat that she taught. Now, this was probably 10, 15 years ago, something like that. And she told a story of a time in her practice when um, she said, you know, things were fine. You know, things were kind of going along. And yet there was an impatience. You know, it's like, it just seems like ordinary, you know, what's, isn't something supposed to happen? And she went to her teacher and described what was going on and, and um, you know, described all of the experiences that she was having. And his response was, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. And that, to me, that was such a helpful teaching. Over and over again, I found myself with that attitude of, making the effort in order for a result and then reminding myself, I can't create that result. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. Our effort in helping fruit ripen 
is to make sure that a tree has the nourishment it needs, to make sure that the tree has the water that it needs, the conditions that will allow it to have the fruit ripen. But we can't make that fruit ripen. And likewise in our practice, we create the conditions in which our minds can release. This wise effort and wise mindfulness are the conditions, the soil, the nourishment for the release. But that happens in its own time. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. And we will have the next sitting at 9 o'clock and there will be some chanting during that sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.